Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Hey, thanks for joining with us today. Whether you stumbled on our podcast or connected intentionally, we think you may just be where the next right step in your recovery is about to happen. Faith in your recovery may be exactly what you need. We've become a true source of help and hope for those battling substance use disorder slash addiction. We've seen those strugglers who were once thought of as throwaways, castaways, the forgotten and forlorn. We've seen them start to grow and change the stigma, change the bias. We're seeing success unlike we ever have before in recovery as well. And we're going to share that today. We're going to share it in a way that's very raw and real. We're going to share it with you in a way that's transparent. Hang with us. Hold on. Our guest today, Andy Yergler. Welcome, Andy. Hi, Randy. Good to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Tell the folks a little about you right now, not what you're doing for recovery. Tell them about you, where you're at in life. Well, right now I'm uh, about to celebrate my 45th birthday this year. Hooray for you. (laughs) I've got three teenage kids. My oldest is going to graduate here in May. I'm a single dad. Um, we operate a couple small family businesses, and I'm pretty active right now in the recovery world. Tell the folks where you're from. Yep. I am from Bluffton, Indiana. It's in Wells County, about 30 miles south of Fort Wayne, Indiana. All right. Well, so it was a little drive here today, but you've got a background in this area, yes? Yeah, we do. We uh, had a family business that we sold in 2020, but during that time, we did some local business here with the local businesses, and it was fun coming down Highway 9, and so we're just doing a little reminiscing and seeing all the growth and the renovation that's taken place over the last three years that I haven't been on that highway. All right. Just a little nostalgia (laughs) tour for you, yes? Yes. It made the drive go smooth. All right. And what a beautiful day it is. Folks, I don't know where you're listening from. And this is February 15th, as Andy and I are sharing. And I noticed coming over today, 65 degrees. I have no issue with that whatsoever. Just glad to have it, regardless of what tomorrow's weather may be. I'm going to celebrate today. And isn't that what recovery is about? We can look back, we can see the struggles, and we're going to share those here in just a little while. But as we start to move into recovery, we have reason to celebrate. We're going to look at that. So, Andy, let's go back early in life. Tell the folks what what your upbringing was like. Yeah, my uh, upbringing was a fairly decent and... I would consider normal upbringing. Uh, I was fortunate to have a mom and a dad in my life. I have a younger brother. And um, as I was older, my parents adopted my sister, who is from uh, Bogota, Colombia. And we were a family of five. Uh, My dad, he's an entrepreneur. He uh, 
started, managed, grew some businesses as I was growing up. Mom was always at home. Uh, she wanted to be a homemaker throughout her life. And yeah, I remember nearly never going without. Um, we always had food on the table. We always had plenty of food. I also had a wonderful family support system, um, a grandpa and grandma. Uh, I lost my one grandpa when I was four in a farming accident, and but I still had his wife, which would be another grandma growing up, aunts and uncles, you know, birthdays, holidays. I mean, it was always a close family knit um, community and family that I grew up in. So it sounds like you had a lot of stability and not a lot of true challenges that some folks face. That's a very accurate statement. Okay. Okay. Let's move forward. Let's tell the folks who Andy was and what he was about in high school. Let's hit him with that. Okay. Can we drop it back maybe two years of middle school? You betcha. That's sort of when things in my life started to change. Um, I think in middle school was that time of life when so many people, they are they get confused. They're searching for that identity. I don't think there's a tougher time in life for young people. They're struggling to be adults, but they've still got that mind that's not there yet. Go ahead. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I know in my situation, I, I didn't know who I was. I didn't. I have had zero self-worth, um, very little self-value. Um, it wasn't that I didn't know who I was. It was more I didn't know or I knew who I wasn't. You know, I was a little socially awkward in the sense that I was a, I probably had ADD, HD, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm all over the walls. Um, I was one of those annoying kids. <laughs> and, but in the midst of all that, there was a couple of events that happened in my life that it's, it's interesting. I'm 44 and I still can remember them like yesterday. But one of them was in sixth grade, I was on the wrestling team. And I remember during one of the wrestling tournaments, a couple eighth graders uh, caught me in the restroom and thought it'd be cute to give me a swirly, something pretty harmless. And, uh, but you know, I, I fought them off and everything I was doing to keep my head from going in that toilet. And then it sort of the, the last straw of that whole situation was my best friend who was also a sixth grader along with me jumped in on their side and I, just the betrayal, I mean, it just something the happened The emotional inside. impact of all of that rocked your world for the moment. Oh, and obviously still today you wouldn't be talking about it. Impacted you, if nothing else. It was huge. I mean, I was broke. Um, I was, I went home and I, I mean, I remember just locking myself in the bathroom, bawling like, I mean, and it was a more of an anger. I mean, it was, I hated it. And then about a few months later during the spring sports, um, we were waiting after track practice one day and again, some of the kids, we were waiting for our parents to pick us up. We we're running around, having a good time. And again, I'm sure I was being annoying, but again, at that time, another eighth grader came over and sort of like grabbed me by my arms and sort of like sat me against the wall and says, no, you know, you sit here till your mom gets you like, leave us alone kind of a thing. And it was sort of just another form of rejection to where, and again, I'm 13, I'm uh, in sixth grade at that point. And I remember to this day sitting there saying, you know, this will never happen to me again. I will never be rejected like this, nor will I ever allow someone to like put me in a place where they think they need to put me. 
And I'm going to guess we're going to find out where that attitude led you. Yes, finding acceptance in yeah. here and there. So tell us more, you know, what that created and where it took you, please. Yeah, so that day I became a little harder. And over the next uh, course of the year, I um, throughout my seventh grade year, I became more— uh, I had more of a chip on my shoulder. I, I became a harder kid. I was upset. And then on a Friday night, one of my good friends, his parents spent the winters down in Florida, and he invited me to come over to his house after school. So on a Friday after school, we went over to his house. His grandparents lived right beside him, and he's like, or he said, hey, we can go over here. Mom, our grandpa and grandma are at home, and we can drink some beers. So we ended up going over to grandpa and grandma's, and got in the liquor cabinet, and my first, like, experience ever with trying to experiment with anything at that point, substance-wise, uh, was with vodka, where I ended up drinking, like, eight shots of vodka in 20 minutes. Um, you were how old? I was 13. Okay. And then we finished the evening off by just sipping on a fifth of uh, Jack Daniels or Jim Beam, one of them. And I had alcohol poisoning, and, I mean, it was it was a mess. However, that was on a Friday. By Monday, it already got into school. What had happened? And then we went to a party later on that night, on Friday night. And, um, yeah, I don't – I guess my reputation became at that point of more of a partier or a good – oh, my, can you believe he did this? Again, this is seventh grade. This isn't – you know, as a 40-year-old in the bar closing it down. I mean, right. this – Amongst the seventh graders at the time, that was, eh, hey, not a lot of them were doing that, and rightfully so. So that became more the identity I took on then as, hey, I'm going to be known as this partier. I'm going to be known as this hothead. It got your attention. It got me attention. Yeah. You weren't rejected at that point. Uh, there were probably even those who looked up to you, as awkward as that may sound or seem, because you had stepped up to that adult level some might want to call it so, yeah yeah okay. yep go so, ahead with more of that yeah sure so then as uh that continued to go um or transpire i always played sports and everything but now i noticed my shift was going more from the sports to more of the bad boy or more of a bad kid juvenile delinquent uh behavior was more appealing to me than trying to work hard and play sports and that kind of stuff. And then when I was a freshman in high school, um, I decided not to play football that year. And then I ended up getting kicked off the basketball team uh, because I was caught smoking two or maybe three times within the season. And after that, things just really, and just in my own life, again, just had that chip on my shoulder, started to develop these defense mechanisms. I wanted to be this little hardcore kid, kind of a um, freshman who was lost trying to figure out this life. Nobody's going to set you down anymore and put a finger in your face and tell you how to respond, act, or not act, right? That was correct. That is correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so... As I went through high school, things continued to escalate uh, from the drinking to then uh, start smoking uh, marijuana. And I, by this time, I was completely done with sports. I worked on a dairy farm all throughout high school. Um, I really enjoyed that. I mean, that's probably one, the one thing that did keep me from totally getting totally lost um, 
during those years of my life to where it still gave me enough uh, responsibility. And in a sense, it's, it filled as an identity as well. I mean, people, I saw myself as a hard worker during the summers, rebelling hay during the school year of milking. And the owner of the dairy farm the, was, well, my uncle and his brother. And I really got close to my uncle's brother. And, you know, he really helped me out through some of those times to keep me somewhat sane going through the rest of my high school years. <laughs> all right. All right. So you had those challenges. You say you have a younger brother, right? I do, yes. Okay. How much younger? Uh, we're about 15 months apart. Okay. So pretty close age-wise. Yep. Did he have any battles with any of this after watching you? Uh, not necessarily. Like the reasons why I did. I mean, again, we like. I I don't know if he seen me as an older brother, and I mean, he did his fair share of partying as well, and never escalated to the point of where mine okay. did. Yeah, I just wanted to see how that impacted him and yeah. how that played. All right, so you're in high school. It sounds like you're into a bunch except the things you ought to be into. I'm going to guess your education was sliding. And well, you know, it's funny you say that. Now, I did finish 10th in my class. I graduated in 1997, 10th in my class, and that's 10th from the bottom. So, yes, <laughs> education was sliding a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Other priorities, for <laughs> Correct. sure. All right, what happened after high school? Then? So, after high school, I uh, moved out of the house. Um ready to do it all on my own kind of a thing. And this was around ah, toward the end of July, beginning of August of 1997. I was in Fort Wayne, met a new group of people, and uh, I was at an individual's birthday party that evening. And I had gotten to know him over the last couple months. And so for his birthday, I ended up uh, through another mutual friend. I found a, I don't know if it was a gram or a couple of grams of cocaine, and I gave that to him as his present. That night, we're sitting around out in the garage, and he said, hey, you know what, why don't, this is a great present, but you got to do it here with me. Now, I'd never done it. Um, I've never really done any harder drugs than just drinking a lot and weed at the time. And that night, I did my first, uh, line of cocaine, and from that point on until October were probably like the worst 100 days of my life. <laughs> Why? Because it just didn't stop. It was line after line and yeah, it hit never, after hit. It never stopped. I um, I was that one statistic where, I mean, I just I couldn't get off of it. I just, I, I, mean, I loved it. It was just everything I wanted, and at the time, I had access to um, as much as I wanted, pretty much. And, yeah, it was just a – it was a bad scenario. Um, at the, I remember uh, during those 100 days, I mean, there would be four or five-day binges of just not having a clue, like, what day, what time of the day, where it's at, how many hours or how many days I had been up. I know when I was arrested uh, in October, about 100 days later – I was living on probably close to maybe two egg McMuffins a week. I mean, my health was uh, decreasing rapidly. Uh, I've had conversations with my dad during that time, 
And he, he told me numerous times how he would come try to check on me at the apartment that I was staying at. And I mean, he was preparing himself to find me there on the floor, unresponsive, probably deceased. And it was just a rough time, not just in my life, but for the lo- the people that love me who were around me, it was super rough on them as well. Oh, I'm sure that's the case, that worry, that concern, and each phone call wondering, yeah. are they calling to report that to us or however that may have played out? You had those hundred days. You briefly alluded to the fact you were arrested. What is that? possession kind of thing yep. or so um in september i was briefly i was arrested for a fake id in a liquor store and when they were sort of pat down and went through my wallet for the id there was a little bit of cocaine in my wallet at that time so instead of just being a minor and uh, possession of alcohol with a fake id now all of a sudden it became a possession of cocaine and I spent the weekend in the county jail. I had convinced my parents that, you know, okay, this is it. I'm done. I hit my rock bottom. Just let, I need out of here. So on Monday morning, I was bailed out. And by within an hour, I was already, um, yeah, had coke in my possession and was flying high again. Eventually, within those 100 days, probably the last three weeks maybe, maybe month of that during that time, I probably had, I, I had acquired close to, close to an eight ball a day habit. And I was uh, dealing the cocaine on the side to supply the habit. And um, so I ended up getting wrapped up with a confidential informant and through a couple purchases from me, I then, they used all that information and everything and set up a sting operation to where on the, yeah, in October 1997, I was arrested for dealing cocaine. So go back to the eight ball. Yep. I know there are folks out there who know what that is, what that means. Explain it to those who don't. Would you please? Yeah, I guess eight ball is a slang term. It's roughly around three ounces of cocaine. Okay, just want those folks to uh, to get that who don't understand yep. it. Okay, and then you went on there to say that, uh, yeah, and I can't even recall now exactly what it was you said after that. Yep, so I was arrested for, uh, was, I came in contact with the confidential informant. Yes, yes, you talked yep. about the CI. Yep, the CI, and then, yeah, I made a, uh, a deal with him on two different occasions and then finally on the yeah on that second one i was arrested it was a sting operation uh we were at a bank and as i was pulling out of the bank i noticed he was going the wrong way down on one way i seen a cop car coming down this street one coming from the west the and east you the south knew what you and knew. yeah i thought either this bank is getting robbed or this is not good yeah <laughs> so did you know this guy the confidential informant had you had a long term or no. any kind of relationship or it was well the irony is he was a uh at one time before he must have fell into his uh drug addictions himself he was a yeah a local manager when i was a kid at our local pizza hut 
So I, that's sort of how I knew him. You knew of him more knew of better him. than you knew him. Yeah, but he, um, I guess he had, and again, there's a age discrepancy. So, I mean, he, I guess he had a reputation. Um, this wasn't his first time of being caught and being a CI. Yeah. But, uh, but that was pretty much the gist of it. Right. Okay. So at that point, you went to jail for how long? Yep. So that arrest happened in October 1997. Um, in February of 1998, the uh, state of Indiana and um, the judge said, hey, here's 15 years. I'll suspend five years of that. Go figure it out. And I was sentenced to the Department of Corrections for 10 years. Okay. Served how long? Yep. I ended up serving a little over four and a half years. Okay. So from 19 to 22. Okay. Where was that? Yep. So uh, like anybody who is sent off into the Department of Corrections in Indiana, your first stop would be the uh, RDC, the Reception Diagnostic Center there in Plainsfield, Indiana. And you go there, they run you through these different assessments, education, trauma. Uh, It's more just trying to figure out who you are. Yep. And then from there, they distribute to wherever they can find a bed across um, the state of Indiana for whatever penitentiary level of security that you qualify for. So I was there for probably about 26 days, maybe 28 days. That's where... As a human being, like, I mentally, emotionally broke. And then after that 28-day stay there, I was sent to Westville, uh, which is by in Lake County, I believe, up towards Michigan City. And I was there for around 14 months. And then from there, I was sent over to Chano Lakes, which is a walk in the park, literally. <laughs> it's a state park in Nobles yeah, or Noble County. Yeah. For the lakes, not for the facility, <laughs> well, okay? Yeah, you, you know, there's probably about 120 offenders there at that time. So, I mean, it really, I mean, if you're going to have to do time, it was the place to be. Um, but I was there for about three years, and then I finished up uh, the rest of my incarceration at the South Bend Work Release Center. Okay. So, you got out. Did you go back home? Yep. So, I was released in September of 2002, um, went home, and... I, one of my dad's friends, he had a, a small business and he had a position open up in that uh, business to where when I came home, I had employment. So yeah, for the next year or so, I had a place to go where I could start um, getting brought back into society, I guess you could say. I would work there and then I made a decision. I wanted to go work on a four-year degree. So I ended up enrolling and started to work on that as well. So did did you stay clean during that year before you went off for your degree? Uh, I did, yep. So when I came home in 2002, uh, October uh, 10th was that the exact date. October 10th of 1997, that's the last day I've ever used cocaine or any kind of narcotic. Um, once I came home from prison, I, uh, yeah, I never went back to it. Here's an interesting side note. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I talk to people— Um, They think sometimes for your first offense, like I had an excessive prison sentence. And I think, you know, at the time I agreed with that. I thought this is ridiculous. You know, if I would just been a county over or whatever, I mean, at this time served drug court, whatever. But I remember this to where I look back on this now and it's one of those things where, you know, 
whatever someone's higher power may be, there's so, there's always something in control here. And I think I, for me, two years probably would have not have been enough time to be incarcerated. But uh, I remember I had been I was incarcerated for about two years. It was a Sunday evening, and we were watching in sixty minutes. And on sixty minutes, there's this. It was an episode about the cartel. And for everybody listening out there who understands or knows what 60 Minutes, that show, when they go to commercial break, it always ends with, and when we come back, we will. And then you always say, you hear tick, 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 a talk, or a clock's going in. Well, <laughs> yeah. at that moment, the break, it said, when we come back from break, we will explore the life of the user or something, the addict or something like that. And it's like tick, 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 tick. And it showed somebody doing a line of cocaine. And I'm two years, like, completely clean. I'm incarcerated. And, like, my stomach flipped. Like, if it was anywhere around me or if I knew where I could even get my hands on it, I was going to do it. I mean, and it was like a wake-up call, like, holy cow, this is crazy. A true trigger. A true trigger, yes. Yeah, so how did that play out, obviously? It brought brought perspective back to where, okay, maybe I'm not ready yet. I mean, I think it humbled me. And it's still, it's one of those points where I look back at, and it's like sobriety's so fragile, and like it's got to be respected on a daily basis. I like that. Has to be respected on a daily basis because one day can change the, your future in a hurry. Well, yeah, one minute. Yeah, one minute. <laughs> you know, or sixty one minutes. Half, one drink. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the rest of the story. So, all right, let's play this on through. Uh, you, you were watching 60 Minutes. A couple of years later, you get out of prison. You're headed back home. You're, you're at a point where you recognize you needed that time away in order to live the rest of life the way you wanted to. You got enrolled in school. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go yep. to college? So I ended up going to, I got my uh, four-year degree through Indiana Wesleyan University um, in business. Um and when I came home, was that online or did you attend no, somewhere? I did the adult learning process, uh, the program. Um, I would do. I would go to Fort Wayne once a week. Um, we would meet in a building for four hours. It was like one class every five weeks. Just keep rolling through it. It okay. was a little over four and a half years like that. So, what'd you get your degree in? In business. In business. Yep. So it was a, uh, you know, I. I, I needed that. It was good. It, again, my life's been trying to figure out my identity kind of thing. So, you know, that was sort of something. But what's interesting, I tell people today is, yeah, you know, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on trying to help my self-esteem. <laughs> I never really used it in um, the corporate world for the fact of once I got my degree, I also had a felony on my record. And everything I wanted to use it for, I needed this license. A felony well, block. I couldn't get that license because of my felony. And so I never really used my degree in a sense of um, in a corporate or a career. However, you know what? It did give me the confidence to go forward on several things that I wanted to do throughout life. And what you're doing now, we'll talk about that after a while, but that business degree certainly comes into play with that. Okay. So, uh, all right, you've got that degree, uh, you're done with school. What's the next step in life? Yep, so about uh, two years before I get the degree, I 
sort of jumping over here on you. Ah, no problem. Come home from prison, 2002. I'm working. I'm working in a factory for about a year, year and a half. Uh, go on, get my degree. In the meantime, during that, I do a little bit of work with a, a local church and uh, youth ministry. Uh, get involved with uh, Campus Life, YFC, Youth for Christ. Uh, I sort of just want to share my story. Um, I, again, I come home with this chip on my shoulder in a sense like, hey, I need a, I made a mess of my name. I made a mess of my life. I need to put this all back together. I've watched a lot of my friends move on with their lives. They got their degrees or they were getting married, had gotten married, were having children. Um, I felt like I was behind. And it's like, I got to go gun-ho and get ahead here. I got to play catch-up. Lost time to make it. Yep. So, and again, it, it was a great motivator. Um, you know, I would say to somebody out there in that position today who is – maybe feeling that same way that I was back in. I mean, again, sometimes people aren't as far as along as what you think they are. And, I mean, over time, time's a great equalizer to where you can realize, hey, you know, go at a, go at a pace you can handle. That's part of the key to eliminate some of that stress, okay? You yeah. can only push so hard regardless. So, so yeah. But, yeah, so then about 2005, I'm, I'm home for about uh, two and a half years now. I thought that, okay, life's going good. I'm off probation. Um, I'm somewhat free. And then at that point, I thought, you know what? I probably can handle a few drinks. So I picked up the bottle. And um, it was probably within 90 days I had a drinking problem, and within probably four months to six months, full-blown alcoholic. You're back at it again. Yep, not necessarily narcotics, not necessarily anything illegal, but now it's... Still damaging. Destroying things, yes. You and those around you, plans, dreams, hopes, family, everything else. How did you wrestle that and yeah. move beyond it? So at that time, um, and again, this is 2007, so I'm looking at this through a 26-year-old's eye worldview. And even though I was 26, I spent some of the most crucial years of my early adult life incarcerated. I had a lot of issues that I never handled. Um, the whole identity thing, the whole insecurity thing. Um, I, there was just a lot of unanswered crap in my life that I just wasn't working on. And I think the alcohol, for me, it was used to numb some stuff. But at the same time, it was there to help me become a Superman or to get me out of the shell and do things that order that I would not have ordinarily done. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Sure it does. It gives you a boldness, even if it's false. Yeah. And some bravado would helps, uh, yeah, lift you up in your head from the high. Yep. So, and, and I was getting frustrated, too, especially in 2007, once I uh, graduated with my degree but couldn't actually pursue or use it because of, well, I can – the economy at that time was starting to turn a little bit. As also, we were going into a, the great housing uh, recession back in 2009, so things were starting to turn. People were not hiring as much, but also the felony was definitely a hindrance. 
And so that was a little bit upsetting. And then in 2006, uh, my best friend and a uh, great guy, um, he and I decided to do a small business together. And we got into the real estate uh, market. And during that time, we were buying houses and we were um, fixing them up and we were creating rentals or things like that. And um, my, I had a couple of young kids at that time and they'd be in bed by seven or eight o'clock at night. Then it was time to go work on the rentals. And from 8, 8, 8 p.m. till one, two in the morning, it was just a good time to go paint a wall and drink a case of beer, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that just started, uh, again, escalate over the next, uh, well, that was 2007 all the way to about 2010, 2011. So another five years, four or five years there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. In, uh, 2010, uh, one of my life mentors, uh, <laughs> he, uh, decided to get about five of us guys together and go to Haiti and help out with a earthquake aftermath that they had there back in 2000. It might've happened in 2009. No, it was 10. Was it 10? Okay. So we went in October of 2010. And at that point, uh, my marriage was coming to an end. Um, I destroyed that. The kids at this point were still young enough. They knew probably more than what I thought they knew, but Again, my oldest son at that time would have been about six years old and my daughter would have been four. But I realized that I wasn't being the dad that I needed to be. I would look in the mirror, Randy, about two, three times a week. And I would ask a question, is this the man I want my boy to be when he grows up? And is this the man I want my daughter to marry someday? And I could never answer yes to those questions. And that became another issue to just keep drinking more. Like, dude, you got to get together. And I just, I couldn't find a way to pull it together. And in 2010, it was, again, getting dark. And there in Haiti, I met a gentleman who had been sober, sober for about three years. And we were talking one night, and he said, you know, hey, if you want to do this, he says, I'll walk with you through this. When we get back, we'll meet once a week. So was this one of the fellas that went along with you as a part of the team? Correct. You heard his story there. Yep. Okay. Yep, there were six of us. And and we all knew each other, but we weren't close. And um, we were going, um, we were sitting around one night, and he's like, hey, if you want this, I'll I'll walk with you. I'll be your sponsor. He's like, here's the deal. We're going to meet once a week. And I don't care how long it takes you to get sober. He's like, two rules. One, you got to want it. Second of all, no lies. Outside of that, I don't care. I'll do this with you. So from 2010 to 2016, I told this guy probably over 250 times, today was the day I'm getting sober. And I would call him. Sometimes it was later that day. Sometimes it was the next day. Sometimes it was... Uh, three weeks later, sometimes it was three days later, saying, hey, I'm done. I, I can't do it. I'm drinking again kind of a thing. But we would meet for six years like that um, every Friday outside of maybe he's on vacation once a year. I'm the on exception. vacation. Yep. About 49 times out of the year we're meeting. And he did this with me through, for from 2006 wow. to 2010. Wow. That's somebody that cares. Yeah. He showed me what unconditional, no strings attached meant. He showed me how, you know, 
today we're like best friends. Um, at the time, though, it was more of a uh, sponsor, uh, mentor kind of a thing. And yeah, to this day, it's. I mean, he we went. He walked with me through a divorce. He walked through with me remarrying the lady that I or my kid's mom when we got remarried. Walked through another divorce. I mean, it was like he he did life with me. And I always told him, hey, I want to get sober. I do. I just, today's not the day. I, I don't know. I don't want to do it today. And we just had this f- relationship that started, uh, uh, that was established. And that had to, whether you recognized it at the moment or not, had to increase your self-worth for somebody to care that much when you're not necessarily, quote-unquote, being the best of students. But that didn't change his mind and heart. He was still there. So all of a sudden, I must matter. I must mean something, at least to him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he would tell me how, like, mutual people, he never told me who specifically, which is fine, but he would tell me people would be like, why are you wasting your time with Andy? Like, oh, you yeah. know, he's not going to. that over and over. He's going to, and, and you know, and if, hey, you know what? I like the guy. He and I get along well. And then, and then it's like, yeah, I mean, a friendship came out of that. And yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, he, he, and he showed me as I'm helping people with their recovery these days. And um, he, he gave me the roadmap on how you do it. So he's the one who got you to sobriety between him and God. You got there, yes? Between him and three other people in my life that sort of um, were very close, uh, not near, like we didn't have the near the dynamic of a relationship that he and I had. Sure. But it was still like three guys to to this day. Their team. Yeah, I call call them, they're my uh, nuclear key. Okay. Before I drink or I I would take another drink, I told all four guys that I will give them a call. I have to talk to all four of them within a day before I can take a drink. And since I've told them that, you know, I think there was once during COVID where it got bad and I was on the numbers. I I called the second guy and said, I think today's the day. And then after talking to him, I was fine. And to this day, I've never had to call one of them like, okay, you know, hey, I'm on the edge here and. I'm looking for my four keys so I can go nuclear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Now, let's jump ahead. I want the folks to know where Andy Yergler is today. What's happening in your life? How are you using your time, your sobriety, and your experience? Tell the folks. Yeah. So today I am over six and a half years sober. I took my last drink July 3rd of 2016. I've been living the sober life now for over six and a half years. Um, I didn't really necessarily get involved with the recovery sobriety world until November of 2021. Um, I was asked to come share my story at our local Brianna Hope uh, chapter in Bluffton. And this would have been October 31st, I believe, Halloween night of 2021. And I have not shared my story. I really had done anything with the recovery world at that time. I have, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I have three teenage kids. Um, I run two different businesses and my life was pretty busy, but I said, you know, I'll come, yeah, I'll come and share. And going there that night, I share my story and little did I know at that time, a family member of mine, was in the process of trying to 
um, take their lives by OD. And my world was rocked when I went home that night. And it connected me to this group. It connected me to that Brianna's Hope chapter to where I started going back on a weekly basis. And I began to get more involved with the recovery world at that point. Where I thought I was going to share a story and maybe help someone else out, what I didn't realize was that was the beginning of a night that was going to help sustain me for the next year and a half of my life of some of the challenges that were coming my way. So, folks, let me go ahead and explain to you. Better Life, Brianna's Hope, we call ourselves a participant-driven, faith-based, compassion-filled support and recovery movement for those battling the battle with substance use disorder slash addiction. We have several chapters around the state of Indiana, Ohio, the state of Virginia, and South Carolina. And what Andy shared with you, that's what we're about. We're about sharing our stories, sharing our lives, finding victory, support, and recovery together. He had that experience. And uh, so you're doing what today then, Andy? Yep, so today I'm an owner-operator of a couple food trucks. Um, I like to try to hire people who are coming home from prison or in the recovery world. Um, the lady that runs my truck right now, um, she, well, <laughs> she runs it. I think I'm the boss, but she runs it. <laughs> it would not operate if it wasn't for her. But uh, I know she's been um, in recovery for several years herself, and I do. I, I know that in life— Life's not about second chances. It's about five, 6,000 chances. Sometimes I'm also a believer that, you know, sometimes people cut ties with people. That you give them a chance, two, three chances, but sometimes they're just not ready. Sure. And um, in my life, I've had several people who I should have probably been out of chances but continue to give them to me. And when they would stop, other people would. And I liked it. My philosophy is, you know what, I will give if I'm – willing to sit down and you're willing to work. I, I don't care how many bridges you burn. I'm willing to give you that chance. And so I use that truck for recovery. We, uh, I know a lot of the proceeds, uh, we do dump back into the recovery world. Uh, we're, I went on to a, another partnership with a, a friend of mine. We developed another food truck over the winter and, um, I'm excited to get that one out on the streets and, I have a uh, small real estate business with my partner who I uh, I alluded to him earlier that we started our real estate business together. And we do that. He's got a, a big heart for helping people out. So it, during we used to have uh, quite a few rentals. And at that point, we could help a lot more people out. Now we've sort of sold all those and we do more of vacation um, VRBOs. And so we've gotten away from the individual rentals at this point. And it was time. <laughs> After 15 years of doing that, it was time to change yeah. it up a little bit. So now you're doing a lot for those who are fighting the struggle you once fought. As they come out, you're giving them that hope, that help, that identity, that sense of personal pride. So many of those things that you struggled for. Yeah, you know, and it's one of those things where, hey, no matter what happens in life, I mean, as long as you've got breath, you've got another chance of doing something. So let's wrap this up with this question. The name of our podcast, Faith in Your Recovery. What's that mean to Andy? Faith in my recovery. I think faith in my recovery is trusting 
It's believing in the higher power. It's trusting the process of recovery. And it's never giving up on yourself. Amen. Andy, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate your testimony. I'm sure it's going to touch lives, change lives, and who knows, maybe even save them. We believe that happens here on Faith in Your Recovery. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Randy, and it's been a great time talking with you. God bless you and folks. Faith in Your Recovery, we believe recovery just like a rainbow. You can't see a rainbow without sharing it. We believe your recovery must be shared. It, too, can impact somebody. It, too, can make the difference they're hunting for. So stay in the battle. Don't give up. And the next time, make it the last time. We're here for you. We're here with you. You can reach us at ablbh.org. Take care. God bless.